The Forum on Workplace Inclusion's 2021 podcast series is sponsored by Best Buy. More diversity in tech means more ideas that can change the world. Learn more at bestbuy.com slash more of this. If you enjoy the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast, check out our monthly webinar series sponsored by the Walton Family Foundation. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion webinar series are free monthly webinars offering professional and organizational skill building opportunities in diversity, equity, and inclusion topics featuring presenters from industries around the globe. Learn more about our webinar series and to register for upcoming webinars at forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash webinar. Donate to the forum. We get to engage people, advance ideas, and ignite change because of the generous support from our community. If you find our resources meaningful or valuable, please consider supporting the forum today. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. That's forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. Thank you very much for your support and generosity. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all our listeners and subscribers. You help support the growth of the podcast and reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've already written a review, thank you. Please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or a colleague you think might find value in the content. Word of mouth is the best way the Forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, and thank you for tuning into the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast series brought to you by Best Buy. I'm Ben Rue, Program Manager here at the Forum. We're really looking forward to today's podcast, How Different Philosophies of Race Can Help Us Heal, with Dr. Sheena Mason of Theory of Racelessness. In this episode, Dr. Mason shares how the concept of race, while not rooted in biology or science, continues to be naturalized and viewed as something of nature. The camouflaging of racism as race, i.e. racism, remains in large part why many people and institutions have failed to entirely and meaningfully address racism even when actively participating in anti-racist efforts. With this in mind, Dr. Mason talks about the and defines the philosophies of race as indicated through popular discourse, literature, and civil rights efforts. We also discuss further readings and ideas to consider. Ultimately, this podcast shows how many people unintentionally uphold racism, and more importantly, Dr. Mason shares how we can stop. This podcast will teach listeners what the philosophies of race are, listeners will be able to identify where they stand philosophically, and will be able to think further about how their present philosophy might contradict their expressed aims. Sheena Mason earned her PhD in English Literature from Howard University, her MA from the University of Houston, and her BA from SUNY Plattsburgh. Before coming to SUNY Oneata, she taught at the College of William and Mary, California Lutheran University, and Howard University. Her forthcoming book, Decolonizing America's Racial-slash-Racist Imagination, an examination of and critique of anti-racist discourse is expected to print in early 2022. Additionally, she co-authored the Harlem Renaissance, a chapter of the forthcoming Oxford Handbook of Ethics and Art, examining what, if anything, is the proper role of race in the aesthetic productions of or about members of racialized populations. In her teaching, philosophy, and service, Dr. Mason consistently and unwaveringly promotes anti-racism, though 
her anti-racism necessarily differs from traditional thought and practices. Her sustained interest in understanding systemic racism and being a change agent for social justice resulted in her primary specialization in African-American literature. Her secondary specializations are American and Caribbean literature. Through her teaching, research, and service, Dr. Mason inspires and informs individuals and organizations on anti-racism and provides revolutionary anti-racist initiatives and policy-changing efforts. One of her mantras is freeing ourselves together, which she aims to cultivate healing, unification, and recognition of shared humanity. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Mason. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Ben, and feel free to call me Sheena. Oh, thank you. Will do. Okay, Sheena, so to to get started, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and the work that you do? So I recently graduated from Howard University. I earned my doctorate in English literature, and I specialize in African-American, Caribbean, and American literature. And the primary focus of my teaching, both at the college level and my research, is this thing called anti-racism. And because of my experience in the for-profit and nonprofit sector, I'm working to bring what I call the theory of racelessness into practical application as it pertains to businesses, nonprofits, um, the, the average person, et cetera. And that's largely what's influencing my talking with you today. Thank you so much. And could you tell me, uh, tell us more about the theory of, of racelessness? So the theory of racelessness is my educational consulting business, and it's based in, off and inspired by, um, again, my research. So what I found through reading extensively both history and then literary texts, artistic texts from around the world is that there are six philosophies of race And there's an entire discipline within the field of philosophy in which certain philosophers focus on these philosophies of race. But for the average person, especially in America, we tend not to hear about the philosophies of race, except every single one of us actually holds at least two of these positions, even if we don't have a name for it. So there are six philosophies of race. And um, Ben, if you could bear with me, I will, I'm happy to explain all six of them as concisely as possible. So there's naturalism. Naturalists believe that race is biological, that race is something fixed. There's an essence to it. This is based off of ancestry, your DNA. The thing about naturalism is that it has been long it has been a long time since this has been disproven right mm-hmm. the average person recognizes that race is not biological that it is something called a social construction however there are still plenty of people who insist that race is biological and at any point scientists will crack the code and be able to point to how people are categorized as subspecies as human of humans Then there are social constructionists, which is the most common position that I would say the majority of Americans say that they hold, even while still promoting naturalist ideas of race that is based off of who your parents are, who your grandparents are, et cetera, or how a person looks physically, biologically. Um, 
constructionists argue that, okay, race might not be of nature, so it's not biological, but because of how racism works in society, or at least in the United States, race is manifested as something real. Um, sort of like how one might describe gender as indeed being a social construction. And then the third category is something called skepticism. Skeptics argue that race is not real biologically and it's not real as a social construction. It's something that people imagine to be real, but if we were really to do a deep dive and investigation into the concept of race, and how race manifests in society, we would identify that the thing that we're calling race is something else. So every person holds one of those three categories. And then based on where you stand, you hold a second category that determines or, or reflects what you think should be done with race. So there are three categories that describe what a person thinks should be done with race. You can be a conservationist, which is as it sounds. You can argue that race in whatever form, the concept of race should be conserved. It should be kept, right? Naturalists would almost automatically be conservationists because after all, if something is biological, it's fixed, it's something that has to be conserved because it exists regardless of whether we want it to or not, right? Right. right. And then you could be a reconstructionist, which most people in America are reconstructionists. And reconstructionists tend to be social constructionists. They argue that, okay, race manifests itself in very real ways, but we recognize that there are some downfalls, some pitfalls, some shortcomings of how race manifests because of racism. So we can reconstruct race in a way that's more positive. And a, a, a popular example of this effort to reconstruct, and, and this will help people see just how common this position is really, is like hashtags, uh, black is beautiful, black girl mm -hmm. magic, Black excellence, Black boy joy, all of these are efforts to reconstruct the meaning of race by reconstructing in the American imagination, what does it mean to be Black, what does it mean to be white, Asian, etc. And then the last category um, of the six is eliminativism. Eliminativism is uh, a position in which people say for various reasons, that race, the concept of race should be eliminated. So eliminativists are almost more often, more often than not are skeptics, um, sometimes social constructionists, and they say for fill in the blank reason, race should be eliminated. Now, I identify as an eliminativist skeptic. Once upon a time, probably six months ago, I would have said I was an eliminativist social constructionist, but my thinking and my knowledge has since expanded and I now identify as a skeptic. The reason behind um, how I came to these positions, again, was largely influenced by my, by my learning 
and recognizing in African-American literature, for example, there are countless eliminativists, countless skeptics. Uh, the most infamous one is probably Martin Luther King Jr., um, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, Elaine Locke, Zora Neale Hurston, you name it, a lot of these really significant and profound African-American figures held eliminativist positions, but their eliminativism was often swept under the rug or misidentified as something that it's not. Um, and I sort of uncovered this position as I was doing my research. Uh, and so at Theory of Racistness, like my educational business, I educate people more fully on all of the philosophies of race. And I show, I use eliminativism and particularly skepticism to help people separate themselves from the racial categories that are that they apply to themselves or that society applies onto them and have more meaningful discussions about racism in a way that then proves to be more productive because people when people are able to separate themselves from the racialized category then it's it's that much more difficult to take offense to something to be caught up in your emotions about any particular thing. And we're encouraged to talk about the actual problem, which isn't race, and we talk about racism. Um, and the last thing I'll say about that particular point is also in my research and examination of American society in particular, it has become apparent to me that more often than not, when people are talking about racism, they're talking about it in terms of race. And that that proves to be a misstep because a lot of the a lot of the problem comes in how people are are using whiteness and blackness in particular as metaphors for either you you are racist or you're a victim of racism. And as you can imagine, that doesn't sit well with people on all sides of the spectrum, right? And so helping people separate themselves from the categories and really become more clear-eyed and astute as to how racism operates, what, what matters about racism, how can we, quote-unquote, be against racism, this is, this is the work that I'm most passionate about, and this is the work that I'm, I'm dedicating my life to. Wow. Thank you so much for that. That was a lot to take in. Um, for our readers, or I'm sorry, for our listeners, would you mind just doing a, just a, like a, just quick recap or not recap, but just listing the six again? Yeah, sure. So there's naturalism, constructionism, eliminativism, skepticism, conservationism, and reconstructionism. Reconstructionism. And, yes, sir. And um, and from what you said, they can be mixed and matched. Yes, some of them would be mutually exclusive. Like one cannot be an eliminativist and a conservationist, or an eliminativist yeah. and a naturalist. But for the most part, you hold two positions: one which says what you think race is. And then the second, which says what you think should be done with race. 
in the default position in American society that I think many people are taught to, to hold these positions would be a social constructionist, reconstructionist position. Mm -hmm. And if we look at the trajectory of race and racism in, the, in this country, we would come to see that race has been under reconstruction since before America was even a country. So, you know, right now, some people respond to, to me and, and say, okay, well, eliminativism, that's, that's fine and all, but how? Like, how is that even practical? How is it possible? I point people to the fact that we've been reconstructing for centuries. So how is that, if, if that's the case, which it is, then how is the idea of reconstructing race to not be racism hiding its face, how is that more practical if we've been literally doing that for centuries? Yeah, and it's clearly not been working out. Um, well, how could, like, how could someone identify where they stand philosophically? Well, one question I encourage people to ask themselves is something, something to the effect of, when I think about or talk about race, what am I, what do I mean by race? What is blackness? What is whiteness? How do I know if I am black? How do I know if my neighbor is black? How do I know if my um, coworker is white? Like, how do I know somebody's race? And if we start to ask ourselves those types of questions, then we can start to, to parse out for ourselves, are we calling racist social construction and at the same time, how I know I'm black is because my mom is black? Or, you know, like, yeah. how do I, am I white because my parents are white? Like, we can start to figure out, how, like, what we actually mean by race and racialized categories. And then we can start to figure out the sort of unintentional upholding of racism that happens when we find ourselves using naturalist terms to describe race because those naturalist terms are something that we certainly inherited in something that we teach our children, but those terms are rooted in and stem from slavery and the enslavement of Africans, right? And when yeah. they were trying to, to calculate who was black and who was white. And at that time, it, was, it wasn't about it wasn't actually about ancestry or DNA or biology. It was a lot about one's access to power or one's perceived access to power. So whiteness started to get codified in American society as people with access to power. They were not enslaved, right? They could be indentured servants at some point in the 1600s, but they weren't enslaved. They had more access to power. Then there were free people of color who were Africans, indigenous people, people from the Caribbean, uh, 
who were not enslaved, they had more access to power, they could go to court, they could testify, all of, a lot of the rights that racialized white people gave themselves were also afforded to these free people of color. And then there were black people, Negroes, who were racialized as black and who did not have access to that, to that same power, who were property, who were not seen as human beings. If that's the history of race in this country and the, the, the sort of trajectory of how one identifies themselves as, as part of a race, if it comes from that history, I think that we should definitely be exploring, interrogating, and imagining different possibilities um, for, for the future and future ways for how we describe ourselves. And the last thing I'll say too, which is, which is important that I wanna encourage people to think about is how we conflate race with culture and how we conflate race with ethnicity. For a lot of people, they might hear me talk and say, that's great, but I actually love being black, right? I don't, there's no problem with being black. Fair enough, but we're talking, when we're talking about blackness, it has become this sort of expansive metaphysical thing that, encompass, that encompasses culture and history and ethnicity all of that other stuff that because we're we're taking the term black and blackness those terms from race language which is racism are remain problematic and that's why we find ourselves constantly still having to reconstruct what does it mean to be black in the american imagination if to be black in america was a good thing then racism wouldn't be as pervasive and violent as it is, right? We wouldn't be having all of these discussions. And so thinking about how can I stop conflating race with culture and ethnicity and the kinds of, of doors, the kinds of worlds that would open up to us if we stopped racializing ourselves and each other and started um, looking toward, mm, the differences and similarities that exist both intergroup and intragroup that are currently racialized. That is, those are all such amazing points I, and so much to think about, but it got me to like right away thinking, I mean, I am black. I mean, by, you know, I'm from, my family's from Africa um, and I don't say African-American because we didn't move to the States until 1992, but I, from the get-go, because we talked, because we spoke differently, because of our, like, education level, especially me, especially, I am always, always, always getting, like, you're not Black or you're acting white. And I've always been like, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to be Black? And what does it mean to be white? Like, why, like, clearly the color of my skin is the same color as you, but you are calling me white. And it's like, mm -hmm. why? What, like, what is, that? like, you know, mm -hmm. like, what is the, you know, what's the meaning behind, like, you know, what's the secret to being Black in America and, or being mm -hmm. white? And, and yeah, to your point, it is traditionally just a, a, like a matter of power, which I never felt comfortable with or just like or like 
you know, or you have a cer- you have a certain level of education, so you're not black. So it's just like, does being black mean being uneducated in America, or what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Or you know, does be like you don't speak Ebonics, so you're not black? And I was like, is that is there a rule written somewhere? Is there a book that I didn't get when we came to the country? <laughs> Like, this is how you're Black in America? Like, did we not get the orientation? Yeah. And, I mean, also, like, if we're white, why aren't we reaping? I mean, we we have a certain level of privilege, but it's also less like, but if I'm like, for me, I was like, I'm clearly not white. Like, that person, that blonde-haired, blue-eyed person is white. Like, I'm Black, but apparently not Black enough, I guess. <laughs> so it was always like one of those things where it's that's one of those things where I kind of just gave up and just be like I I I you know it was driving me mad like I re- and I even have cousins in the states who call me their white cousin I'm like I'm clearly not white but because <laughs> of you know these con- social constructs that I don't meet for a black person right uh, I'm apparently not black so I'm just like I you know what I'm I'm just gonna like leave give it to God I don't care um, <laughs> yeah. Ben, this is really resonating with me. I'm chuckling um, because when you follow, just like you were doing aloud just now, like when you try to follow the logic, what is on the other end of a lot of those assertions, which is very common and and, and it happens, I would say across, across this country in all types of spaces with all different types of looking people, there is this, this idea that to be white is to be educated, um, and which then means to sound educated, to speak yeah. standard English. Um, and w- what I encourage my my college students to do in particular is like, what is on the other side of that assertion? What is being said about blackness, for example? And to your point, what we can, I think, infer very confidently is that to be black is to then be uneducated and to then therefore sound uneducated. Mm-hmm. And so there's this diminishing of number one, anything that's that's outside of the standard, but then also there's this, this um, internalized and sometimes externalized, you know, problematic idea that to be black is to be inferior exactly and 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 that is the thing like i love that you mentioned that your family immigrated here from from africa well liberia i shouldn't say africa as though it's a country because that's another one of my pet peeves we're from liberia because africa has a lot of countries i was i was going to ask which country um because for a lot of people from the continent of Africa, depending on where you are, you don't racialize yourself as black. Not all Africans in Africa, in the, on the continent, identify themselves as black. They often identify that by ethnicity, tribe, yeah. et cetera. And in certain spaces that have, have been colonized or remain colonized, then there often is this essence of racialization that still exists or colorism that still exists, but many, many Africans don't perceive themselves as black until they come to a space like the United States. And then it's sort of decided for them. But then to your point, you know, all, all people who look black as in have brown skin, right. Mm -hmm. 
are then racialized as black, but then there are levels of blackness. And what is this levels of blackness? I, I really try to to help people to help people really dissect their ideas about race to point out the fact that more often than not, racism is masquerading itself as race. And that the evidence is in part in what you just described, that there is this perceived and accepted idea of what it is to be black and what it is to be white in this country. And that those perceptions are almost always based off of stereotypical racist essentialized notions exactly but, but then the problem comes in the fact that those essentialized notions of race are at least partly reflected in the the effects of racism because we could talk about how there's a disproportionate number of African Americans in this country who are impoverished. We could talk about how there's a disproportionate number of African Americans in this country who live in food deserts or who are incarcerated, etc. And so once you start to to break it down, you come to realize that that's why blackness has has become the metaphor for quote unquote inferior in the ways that it has because racism has played out in a way that supports the idea that to be black is to not have access to power, which which translates into education, which translates into class, which translates into health, all of those things. But, you know, not not enough of us want to talk about it. Exactly. And I mean, and you mentioned the like internalized like inferior like inferiority because it is more often than not um, like that would be black people, black Americans, or who would be who would be like you're not black, and like and and like it's they've accepted this these in these inferior the stereotypes of inferiority that have been put on them, and it's now become ingrained in their mind that, that this is what it is to be black. Um, like it's which is which is one of the saddest things for me. As one to seeing these seeing people just accept that like this is how I'm su supposed to be because of my race and so you know that's it like the whole naturalist mm -hmm. view um, even um even among like the races that are viewed as like races that have been viewed that as inferior and treated as such so long that they start to accept it and just be like that's this how it is yeah. Um, it also reminded me of, I don't know if you have ever familiar with the story of Sarah Rector. Um, hmm? I said, enlighten me. So Sarah Rector um, was a, a Afri African-American uh, girl. Like her family lived on a Native American reserve uh, in Oklahoma in the like turn of the century. And um, they were, they uh, somehow they, well, because the land that they were given was so inferior that it was so bad that they couldn't um, farm it, they her dad leased it out to an oil company, and they turned out like discovering a huge amount of oil on this on her farm when she was just a little girl, which made her obscenely wealthy. Um, and so by so what they did instead of like having this very wealthy black 
family or black little girl, they actually, the, the Oklahoma legislator made an effort to have her declared white so that she could reap the benefits of her elevated status because of all this money that was coming in, which is just so crazy. Like it's just, uh, like, so in order for her to like ride in first class on trains, which she now had the money to do and have access to all these things that some people with their wealth would just normally do, they had to actually be changed. Like the, the legislature had to actually elevate them to white legally which is just so crazy, which just shows how much of a, you know, just like a construct. Yes, and um, yes, <laughs> all I have to say is yes, There's there are writers like Barbara Chase Rabot who wrote Sally Hemings, which was her imagining of the relationship, if we can call it that, between Thomas Jefferson and um, the enslaved Sally Hemings. And in that same text, when Sally Hemings is no longer enslaved, Barbara Chase Rabot imagines that this racialized white census taker um, comes and records her and her family as white for reasons that were really of his own of his own agenda, yeah. but he viewed it as a way to to essentially protect her from being kicked off the land and stuff because racialized white people were permitted to be where she was, but apparently racialized black people were not. And so there is this, um, there is this really interesting irony in how we tend to talk about race as if it's so fixed. But if you look at the history, you can find all kinds of, you know, examples of when it's not fixed, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, even, even in fairly recent history, I want to say this started happening in the 1970s, um, Mexican-Americans were, were once classified as, I think the default was white uh, on like the census and formal mm. census forms and stuff. And then um, within a, a decade or so, it was, it was reclassified like as Hispanic, but Hispanic is an ethnicity. So you see all of this constant reworking of, of what is ethnicity, what is race. I think the very intentional conflation of the two so that we can never disentangle them or we feel like we can't. And um, and if we track the, the ramifications of how race is perceived and how we tend to talk about it in, in popular discourse, then that's when we start to uncover ways in which we unintentionally uphold these racist ideas. Because I would say it's not just racialized Black people who view being white as um, being and therefore sounding educated. This idea is persistent across the board. And, oh, yeah. and there, there are racialized white people who would think that you and I, for example, as racialized Black people are the exception um, because of how we sound and how we talk, which then means that they share this idea that to be white is to sound a certain way and to be a certain way. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I definitely had, I mean, growing up, I grew up in an almost all white community in Fridley, or Fridley, Minnesota, um, and definitely had my fair share of white friends who'd be like, oh, you're our whitest black friend. And I'd be like, well, I think I'm your only black friend. But <laughs> <laughs> a 
but also it was like the same but it was also them just being like saying like you're one of us you're not one of those black people you're one of like you know you're i i feel bad using the term the good ones um but you know it's like yeah no you're like you're one of us and it's just like well it's like this is um a compliment and insulting all at the same time like yeah. i don't know how to feel about this yes um yeah. like thank you I, I i guess i don't know yeah but yeah and to, yeah and like i mean the whole sarah rector the that was in 1913 when the legislator was like hey well we've got this really rich black girl let's make her white because that's the only way that she can like live the life that she's due with all her money which is just mm -hmm. so crazy to think mm -hmm. uh, but yeah and then it and it is like if you you mentioned the census and just the fact that how the the new racial categories that seem to be added every you know every time or how it's edited you know evolving just shows how much of a construct race is right and yet, uh, and yet, I feel like the vast majority of people in the U.S. still continue to take it for granted. And part of the the danger comes in what I hear articulated by people I work with more often than not, which is this this feeling of you know racism rules the world, particularly what's mm -hmm. called anti-black racism rules the world, white supremacy rules the world. We can never be outside of this thing called racism. I think that that is a it, it it's often championed as part of a I guess you could say a liberal or progressive um, umbrella mm -hmm. or categorization, but how defeatist is that because you actually cannot change anything if you don't believe that it can be changed and so the the hopelessness and the pessimism that some people articulate i can understand and appreciate because after all like you and i've been talking about this this thing called race right yeah. this thing called racism has has been in existence since shortly before america earned its independence from Britain. Mm -hmm. So that's a long time, like that is centuries long, right? But when we look at other spaces outside of the U United States, including the continent of Africa itself, then we come to see that race does not, race might exist everywhere, but it doesn't exist in exactly the same ways. It just doesn't, which means that racism looks different everywhere if it exists everywhere and there are places um there are places like ethiopia where most the vast majority of ethiopians don't view themselves as racialized until they leave yeah and i you know i hear stories from from all from people from around the the world who are they have a steep learning curve when they come to this country because they have they have to learn what it is to be racialized what racism is some some people african immigrants especially i've heard articulate their confusion about racism because from their view they're able to accomplish and do anything here um and if we look at statistics we see that a fair amount of them do have economic success in the United States compared to African Americans. Um, and if that's the case, then that complicates the discussion about race, I think, tenfold, because 
what is what is it about um, somebody immigrating from Nigeria that enables them to have success in the United States in ways that many African Americans might not have, right? And and because after all, aren't 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 both black? And so we just have to consider how the topic is so complex, the history is so complex, but the one thing that we can know for sure is that it hasn't race hasn't always existed in the ways that we talk about it now. Although race yeah. is, you know, even even the shape of racism has changed over time, right? Um, and in different spaces, race is relative. Race and racism are relative. And if that's the case, then I I find it fairly easy to imagine a future in which you and I aren't having a conversation about this anymore because it's been it's been solved not in a sort of utopic oh there's absolutely no discrimination or racism ever existing. No. Ten. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I think it could be the case that the statistical majority of Americans or people in this country get to the place where they recognize that race doesn't do us any good. It actually does more harm than it does good. Um, that the better thing to do would be to remove the violence of race because it's racism hiding its face. Um, and if we're able to do that, then we can actually have the progress that I think most of us want to have, which is not to be judged by the color of our skin. One of the things that uh, you mentioned earlier, and I've heard a lot about, or, you know, talk about more and more is anti-racism. Could you um, like elaborate more on what that is? What that movement is? Sure. So um, the first thing I'll say as we turn our attention to anti-racism is that it seems like it's a harder, it's a harder road or perhaps maybe even an impossible road because we've been in this struggle for so long, largely because we keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result, which yeah. some people define as insanity, right? I, I think that is the actual definition of insanity. <laughs> I think that's what it says in the dictionary. <laughs> and and what, what we keep doing the same is reconstructing race. And that's what I hope to inspire more people to, to observe, to recognize, acknowledge, and then consider alternatives like eliminativism, like skepticism. Because if we keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result, then we, we are all in many ways asking for what we get, which is this continued essentialization of people based off of what is perceived to be race which in a lot of ways translates in simple terms into how a person looks and ideas about people based on how they look. And I think no matter how you cut the, the cake, that is a, a, a bad thing. I'm putting that in air quotes. That is not a positive or generative or productive thing because my culture is not dictated based off of what you think my race is um how i speak is not dictated based off of that you know if something is racial if race exists then it would have to apply to every person who fits into that category and as you and i have already revealed <laughs> you know 
It's like you can be racialized as black and be part of any nation. You can speak any language. You can have any level of education, be interested in any number of music genres. I mean, the list goes on. Even in the United States, an African-American person from California is very different from an African-American person in New York. And I would hope that the same holds true for people categorized as white in this country, right? Like we are in a lot of beautiful ways. We are different, we are complex and race and the categories completely washes over our actual differences, privileges, perceived and assumed differences, right? And then um, our actual similarities are swept under the rug and we are less able to see how you and I are more alike than we're different in profound ways. and. And me, a racialized black woman compared to a racialized white woman are more alike and profound than we are different in profound ways. That, that, that level of, of recognition and seeing oneself in another person is prevented largely because of the idea of race. That's why when some people hear Black Lives Matter, which I feel like has become a dirty word in some in some states. When Not some, here in liberal Minneapolis. <laughs> I, when some people hear that, they they respond with all lives matter, because when you put race into the category, it prevents more people than not from seeing the thing that is actually being spoken about, which is racism that's the problem right that's what blm is 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 bringing attention to is racism not blackness or being black or anything anything like that it's like racism is a problem in this country but people aren't always open to hearing that or seeing that because as soon as you put a race word in there then they don't see themselves in that thing And I think that that's a disservice to all of us doing anti-racist work or what we can call anti-racist work, because ultimately what we're really striving for is unification. And how do you unify people? By showing them how they are more alike than not, and really encouraging and enabling a deep level of empathy and compassion and love in the best ways to bring out the best in every person and to stop essentializing stereotyping applying racist ideas to any person that is the goal and that to me is what anti-racism is to me i'll give you my definition as <laughs> to somebody else's right anti-racism to me is also being anti-race I recognize racism as masquerading as race in this country. And I recognize that we conflate ideas of race with ethnicity and culture and we should stop because the thing that is race is racism named as race. So to be anti-racist, to be against hierarchies in society based off of a person's body right? How a person looks, the person's skin color, etc. 
to be against hierarchies based on those things is to be anti-race. And then in parentheses, I would put ism. I make up words all the time. (laughs) That to me is the thing that we should be striving for, not in a problematic, I'm colorblind, I don't see color way. Just the worst. (laughs) Right? Because listen, a lot of well-intentioned people use that kind of language or use the word colorblindness, or they'll say things like, we're one race, the human race, which actually is factually true. But a lot of people misunderstand those kinds of assertions because because what is often connected to it is this unwillingness to acknowledge that racism is a problem, right? Yes. That is not what I am saying here today. I acknowledge that racism is a problem in this country. Not only do I acknowledge it, but I'm also hoping to show more people how they are unintentionally upholding racism by upholding and privileging race. And until we can, we can recognize that and understand that and, and um, see the ways, the error of our ways, um, then we will continue to persist in the problem and the fight against racism because we are unintentionally upholding it. But imagine a world in which we're able to stop conflating race, culture, and ethnicity, and imagine ourselves outside of the confines of racism. Mm -hmm. What does that world look like? It can exist, it has before, it does in other spaces. What does that world look like? What kinds of things can people actually unify themselves around what kind what new language are we going to come up with you know for african americans whose cultures ethnicities have been largely not erased from them but have been complicated let's say by if there are descendants of enslaved mm-hmm. peoples there are now dna tests right where one can get their ethnic breakdown and if that's if that's how you want to um to reconnect with your Africanness, otherwise translated as Blackness, then that is something that I think would happen with the removal of race language. Because we have the technology now, we have the ability now to really reconnect with, with our ethnicities, with our, which are, with our cultures, to recognize how American culture is, is truly an um, anomaly. Uh, an anomaly and also like comprised of all kinds of peoples and cultures culture is not Mm -hmm. static it's not singular you know like it's it's a thing you know um i I think it would be a really beautiful productive and generative thing and it won't be paradise people there will still be other hierarchies Mm -hmm. right but right now we're just talking about this one hierarchy that currently inflicts violence onto communities of people who haven't earned that violence right right and and so that's listen that's why if you can't hear the passion of my voice like (laughs) oh we can hear it dedicated to this i will talk about this i will even at risk of being misconstrued as a colorblind conservative or something like that we have to do better. We have to 
step outside of our pun intended black and white ways of viewing ourselves and each other and we can do better and if we're really serious about making a, the change that we argue for or, wa or want to see then we have to do that internally first and then we can have a real conversation and and, and i do like that you mentioned that get yes getting rid of race won't solve all our problems because i because I, I kept thinking about well well once people stop talking about race will they start talking like then it'll be all then they'll you know there's still a lot of other hierarchies like you know class and um uh and other like le levels that people are judged by that um are still very problematic but i think yeah race is one of the leading ones yeah, I guess, and I think about yeah, with um, how easy it is to be say become like a oh yeah, I like I don't see colors, you know, kind of person, mm -hmm. which doesn't really help at all. No, no, actually, I, I, I think that makes it worse. <laughs> yes, because oftentimes that translates as I don't see color and therefore your problems don't exist, right? Exactly. And that to me is more evidence of this race racism invasion that I'm talking about. Like if if the response to I don't see color is, what do you mean? You don't see my problems, you don't see racism. If racism exists, then my color exists. Like to me, it's like, aha, like that is a real life example and evidence for how race Racism masquerades as race in society because mm -hmm. after all, if the existence of, of racism proves the existence of race, like that's that's the thing, like what do we do with that? And if that's the case, then to me, the case for eliminativism is like that much more clear. Like let's stop trying to reconstruct this thing mm -hmm. that actually is what what people articulate in different ways proven to be the cause of of um, racism. I think it's actually racism is the cause of race. Uh, but so yeah. long as we keep insisting the opposite and then patting ourselves on the back, <laughs> we're gonna keep banging our heads against the wall. And to your point, many of the efforts to like be against racism, if you will, or to be anti-racist, again, very well intentioned, but have led to historically have led to different policies and practices and procedures that actually don't do much of anything to solving the problem. Mm -hmm. And it comes back to this idea that I mentioned earlier, this need to identify the correct problem that we're trying to, to solve. Um, and I'll give you one example. I know we're concluding here. I can talk all day about this stuff. Um, one example of that is affirmative action. If we look at certain institutions like, I don't know, Harvard University, mm -hmm. like one of the big name universities, um, and we see that affirmative action is in place to help get more underserved people into the the realm of the ivy league right that's a really lofty goal except when we see it in practice we see that the pe people who are middle income or high income people of color mm -hmm. who are high income or middle income or come from middle income families often immigrants 
are admitted and then African-American people from urban communities, for example, who are not of middle class but are lo lower class aren't being admitted. So if like if we're trying to solve racism and we're saying that racism is largely problematic because of the ways that it disproportionately affects particular types of communities, then our solutions can't be a sort of blanket privileging of race because actually the thing that we're trying to work towards solving is socioeconomic status, like you said earlier, yes. this question of class. And so, yeah, I just think, I think all around we tend to talk about it and try to solve the problem in two black and white of ways that might make us feel better or feel like we're solving the problem. But actually, if we do an examination into the statistics, we would see that we're not actually solving the problem, right? Right. Yeah, it's just like, well, yeah, it's the whole, yeah, I know it's a great point about the who get, who tends to get those like who in the black community tends to get those scholarships and or, you know, those opportunities. And it's, yeah, it is kind of a blanket being like, oh, look, yeah, look, we have, we have this many black people here, but that's assuming that all black people are the same and all have all the same experiences. So by giving this person a leg up, we're giving the whole community a leg up and we're, you know, we're doing this whole great thing for the whole black community when it's like, nope, you're doing a great thing for that specific person or for your school. <laughs> right, it's, right. You know, we're, we're not a monolith. Um, yes. And wow, this is such a great conversation and I'm really, really bummed that we have to end it, but I just want to thank you so, so much for coming in and having this conversation with us. It was, it's been such a pleasure to have you. And yeah, I hope you'll, I hope we'll be doing a lot more with you in the forum in the future. Thank you so much, Ben. Um, in the meantime, folks can find me at theoryofracelessness.org. Great. Thank you again so much for coming in. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gina, for being part of our 2021 podcast series. It's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you. And thank you to our listeners and to our sponsor, Best Buy. To learn more about race or racelessness, visit www.theoryofracelessness.org or reach out to Dr. Maislin directly at Sheena at theoryofracelessness.org. New episodes of the Forum podcast are available at forumworkplaceinclusion.org forward slash podcast. You can also find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and Stitcher. Thank you again for listening and have a great day. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. 
Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. An Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the local arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.